0: Welcome to IFL Science, the Big Questions, the podcast where we invite the experts to explore the biggest mysteries of science. With your host, Dr. Alfredo Carpinetti. Every second of every day, whether we are actively aware of it or not, we're using our imagination. We're sat in thought or daydreaming, picturing other scenarios, other worlds, or even just imagining what might be for dinner. It said our imagination has no bounds, that we can picture anything we put our minds to. But how do we do this? On today's episodes, we're joined by cognitive scientist, Professor Tyler Mergettis, who is here to answer the big question, how does imagination work? Hello, Professor Mergettis. Thank you very much for joining us today. We'll start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Yeah, my name is Tyler Margettis. I'm an
1: assistant professor of cognitive science at the University of California, Merced. Um, and University of California, Merced—it's the newest campus of the University of California system. We've only been around for around 15 years, so it's—it's it's a brand new research university uh, in the larger scope of things. Uh, and so it's a really exciting place to be. It feels like being at a startup university at times. Uh, But originally I'm from Montreal, Canada. I went to college there and my life was devoted to competitive wrestling. I was on the Canadian national wrestling team for years and was the alternate for the Olympics in 2008 in Beijing. And after that, uh, retired at the ripe old age of 23 or 24 and had to decide what to do with the rest of my life and decided to finally pursue my childhood dream of becoming a scientist. And one thing led to another. I got into the PhD program at the University of California, San Diego, Uh, studied there, then had some additional training in the Midwest of the United States in a little town called Bloomington, Indiana. And most recently was a fellow at the Santa Fe Institute, which is an interdisciplinary research institute that studies complex systems of all sorts. So economies, brains, ecosystems, sort of a hodgepodge, a motley crew of people coming together to understand complexity in all its forms. And from there came to Merced, California, where I am now. And what I'm interested in is the limits of human imagination. So all the things that humans do that allow us to think fantastic thoughts, uh, maybe thoughts that have never been thought before, maybe thoughts that are only considered in some cultures and not others. And my particular focus within that is trying to understand how people get stuck in ruts, thinking the same thing over and over again, whether that's an individual person or an entire culture that considers the world in one particular way. And then how we transform, how we go from one perspective to another, how we have a rupture in our mind that leads us to consider a whole new conceptualization or picture of the world.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. And you're the perfect person to talk about the big question that we have in this episode imagination. How does imagination work? How can our brain conjure stuff that we're not looking at?
1: Imagination ranges from the totally mundane to the absolutely fantastic. And so on the mundane end of things, imagination just means the ability to create mental imagery without sensory input. So it's our capacity to close our eyes and then picture in our mind's eye what the room in front of me looks like without actually getting real-time information through my eyes into the back of my brain that allows me to construct that image. So it's, it's the creative reconstruction of the outside world using only my brain and not input from the outside. And that's something almost all humans do all day long. Right? We're constantly maybe closing our eyes for a moment and picturing that fantastic meal we had the night before or thinking back to a really fun date we had years ago or imagining a trip that we went on. And that's, that's all imagination. On the other end of things, you have the capacity to conjure up ideas or images that have just never been encountered before. So I can say to you, imagine uh, a dogtopus, which is part dog, part octopus, and you can cobble together some vision of what that is, even though that's something you've probably never seen before in real life or perhaps even in art or comics. And that ability of our brains to cobble together different pieces, different concepts that have never been combined together, that's sort of the outer limits of imagination. That's where you get into the realm of creativity and invention. Uh, and imagination refers to that whole range from, you know, mundane imagery of uh, a meal from the day before, all the way to Picasso creating entirely new ways of representing the human form. Now, in terms of how does the brain do that? Well, it depends on what kind of imagination you're talking about. So. The mundane form of mental imagery, where you're just closing your eyes and picturing the world as you were seeing it a moment before, that probably relies on the exact brain we really use to perceive the world. So, uh, visual areas of the brain that are towards the back of the brain, in the occipital lobe. Um, A funny thing happens though, where some people actually aren't able to do that at all. So maybe around one in 50 of the human population has what's known as aphantasia. So these are people with no capacity for mental imagery. And this is something that we've known about for maybe 150 years, but it's only in the last few years that scientists remembered that this had first been described by Galton back in the 1880s. And there's been a flurry of research trying to understand what's happening, what's different in the brains of these people with a uh, And it looks like some of the story has to do with a reduced connection between the parts of the brain that we use for executive control, for bossing around the rest of our brain. So those are parts of the brain that are in the front or sort of sort of top, back, so frontal and parietal areas. Uh, And it seems like in folks with aphantasia, those areas maybe are less able to interact with those visual perceptual areas to basically tell them what to do when they're not getting direct input from the outside world through our eyes. Uh, So that's how mental imagery works. You know, we're basically recycling the parts of our brain that evolved to literally perceive the world. And we're using them in this more creative way to imagine what the world would look like if we were looking at it without any input from the outside world. On the other end of things though, if you're trying to understand how imagination works in the mind of a Picasso or a Richard Feynman, a great physicist, or, um, you know, these, folks who have transformed our understanding of the arts or the sciences or mathematics, there the story is gonna be even more complicated. And I I think it's gonna be a story that forces us to go beyond the brain. So it's gonna be the brain in collaboration with our bodies and the world. And here's what I mean by that. So a classic example of imaginative creativity is the scientist Archimedes of antiquity, sitting down into his bath, having an insight, screaming Eureka, and so the story goes, running through the town naked, screaming Eureka, Eureka, that he'd sort of had this imaginative insight, this creative breakthrough. Now, a lot of people often think of that as an example of pure creative imagination, where at a moment of rest, the idea popped into his brain, and he had the insight. But the interesting thing was that the insight he had was actually about the displacement of objects in water. It was about density. And where did he have that insight? When he himself was putting his body into the bath. And so we see there's this connection between his interactions with the world, sort of the kinds of insights, the kinds of connections that the world offered him, and the actual creative breakthrough that occurred in his brain. And that seems to be a recurring theme across imagination of this creative sort, whether you're looking at the arts or the sciences, or dance, or even sort of mundane creativity that we have in our daily lives. You know, the, the mortals like me and you, Alfredo, who uh, aren't Archimedes, when we make those creative connections, it's often our brain playing some role of putting things together, but then also the world offering these hints, these clues, these cues, these connections uh, that we then take advantage of.
0: Wonderful, thank you very much for uh, that in that answer. And I think that leads uh, well uh, onto the next question. So uh, I was going to ask about the Eureka moment, but clearly it's a balancing between external stimuli and uh, uh, our creative thinking. But is there an understanding on how um, this spark of genius uh, uh, come into play with uh, our imagination.
1: Yeah, this, these moments, these eureka moments, or these sparks of genius, uh, I think are some of the most fascinating moments because they, they really get at this, uh, this tension in the human mind between our ability to really hold fast to our beliefs. You know, we're, we're a stubborn species, and you see that in uh, you know, political debates, uh, religious wars. You know, when people have a way of thinking about the world, they really stick to it. But on the other hand, we have this capacity for radical reconfiguration, right? These breakthroughs, these eureka moments, where seemingly in a flash, we go from one way of thinking to another one entirely. And we know a little bit about how this works. So one component is that there seems to be this trade-off between the benefits of exploration and exploitation. Now, by exploration, I mean considering a broad range of possibilities. And exploitation, I mean really drilling down into one good idea that you've settled upon and discovered. And, you know, uh, scientists use these words to apply to how non-human animals forage for food in the world you know so uh, a squirrel could explore a wide range of areas or sort of really exploit one particular area where there's a lot of really fantastic nuts and it seems like the human mind does something similar so we're able to explore a wide range of connections and then also exploit one set of connections or one particular concept or one area of our space of ideas to try to get as much out of that area or idea as possible. And what scientists have found is that if you look at the careers of scientists, artists, and even film directors, you see that they'll often start with a period of exploration where they're pursuing lots of different genres or ideas, or styles, or maybe collaborators. And then, when they hit on that idea that really made them famous, or made them rich, or had a huge impact on the history of science, so their hot streak, as they call it, then they switch into that other mode, that exploitation mode, where they focus in on that one particular idea that through that process of exploration, they discovered, aha, there's something really promising here, and they're going to double down on that. And that happens on the timescale of you know, years and decades in the cases of the careers of scientists or artists or film directors. But it also happens uh, sort of moment to moment when we're stuck on a puzzle. So one of my fantastic students, uh, Shadi Tabatabayan, she's been looking at how mathematicians have these eureka moments or these breakthroughs or these strokes of genius. And what she's finding is that as they're about to have that flash of insight, that aha moment, they start to explore more surprising connections. Connections between ideas or connections between graphs or writings or equations that they've drawn on a blackboard that they hadn't looked at before. And that's this exploration mode where you're pursuing connections that maybe you didn't think of pursuing before, maybe you didn't think they were worthwhile, maybe they seemed too unusual to work, but in the lead up to that eureka moment, all of a sudden those seem to be on the table and that's a departure from what was happening before. And so a key part of that flash of insight is openness to pursuing new connections so that you can find that one connection that is really gonna make all the difference. The other thing I want to say was that another key component for creativity, uh, and this is, I think, part of why creativity seems so mysterious and why these imaginative moments of breakthrough uh, seem so magical, as I said, is that they're often involving an accident. Accidents are such a crucial part of the history of science and art and dance and literature. And uh, I gave a bit of an example earlier when I mentioned Archimedes, where really it's sort of an accident that as he sat into the bath, he noticed that his body was displacing the water upwards and that accidental noticing prompted him to have this realization about density and the displacement of water. And that happens all the time. So when Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, one of the first great antibiotics, what happened was that he was just a kind of messy, untidy scientist. Uh, He'd gone away for the weekend, had a little break. And when he came back to the lab, he noticed that one of his Petri dishes had been contaminated with a fungus. And normally you don't want contamination in your petri dishes if you're a biologist working on uh, microscopic life. But in this case, that fungus happened to be of the penicillin variety, which people did not realize at the time, is a fantastic antibiotic. And what he saw when he looked inside that petri dish is that all around that fungal invasion, there was this dying off of the bacteria, the harmful bacteria that he'd been growing in there. And that was that breakthrough that led to the consideration of an entirely new way to treat uh, infection that, you know, we still rely on today. So penicillin is still widely used to treat infection. And that was a total accident. And so oftentimes this process of exploration isn't an intentional purposeful, self-driven exploration. It's the kind of exploration that's only possible when the world forces us into accidents, when the world presents us with things that maybe we wouldn't have wanted there in the first place. And that partnership, that dance between what we think we want and what the world offers up is often where the magic of imagination happens.
0: We already mentioned uh, people with uh, aphantasia and uh, you already mentioned uh, um, also how different societies uh, have uh, different uh, abilities to imagine and uh, things they can imagine, etc. So I uh, would like to know if imagination works pretty much the same for everyone or how different it is and how much is it shaped by our physiology, and how much is it shaped by our culture?
1: Yes, so this question of whether imagination is more nature or nurture, uh, you know, gets at this classic question in the sciences of human nature, and cognition, and the mind, which is, you know, is it our genes or is it our experiences that shape the kinds of thoughts that we have? And imagination is uh, no different from the rest of the human mind in that the answer is almost always uh, both. Uh, so, absolutely, we have brains that operate in certain ways. That you know, given standard, reliably reoccurring uh, features of the environment that we grow up in, our brains develop in often very similar ways. But there's also this influence of the kinds of experiences we have, including experiences that are entirely cultural. And one really good illustration of this, I think, is uh, in how we imagine the nature of space and time, right? The, the two foundations of our understanding of the world. and. For a long time, scientists assumed that no matter what society you'd go to, people would at least agree on how to make sense of space and time, right? They might disagree about the right way to structure your government, they might disagree about religious beliefs, but at least when it comes to space and time, there we can have a foundation of mutual agreement. And what scientists have discovered more recently is that even with space and time, there is this radical variety of perspectives, of ways of imagining the nature of space and time across cultures. So I'll give you an example. In the US, and in the UK, and in Canada, and just about anywhere where people speak English primarily, the standard way to think and talk about small-scale space is in terms of ourselves. So we'll say, oh, something's to the left or something's to the right. It would be really unusual if I were at a dinner party and I said, uh, oh, could you pass me the fork that's to your north-northeast? That would be kind of an unusual thing to say. Much more natural would be, oh, to your left. And for a long time, going back to philosophers like Immanuel Kant, the assumption was that that was the starting point for understanding of space, the way that people are going to imagine space is going to be relative to ourselves, to our bodies. And then more recently, people have discovered that that's not true. There are cultures that speak languages that don't even have words for left and right at all. So the Gugu Yimithirr, an indigenous group in Australia, an Australian Aboriginal group, they don't have words for left and right. And they'll primarily refer to the world in terms of northeast, southwest, towards the mountains, away from the mountains, these kinds of non-egocentric ways of orienting themselves. I study a group down in Oaxaca, Mexico, uh, the Isma Zapotec speakers, and they're a part of the Zapotec indigenous family. And uh, their language has words for left and right hand, but doesn't have words for left and right space. So they can use those words to refer to their hands, but not for spatial relations outside of the world. Uh, But they also speak Spanish, which, like English, uses left and right primarily to refer to the world. So here you have a group that has two different ways of imagining the nature of space baked in to their language and an interesting research question is okay well what happens when people have these different fundamental ways of imagining the structure of space and so in some of our work that we've done on there we've looked at whether people change the way they're imagining space when they switch from one language to another it looks like the answer is no it looks like there what really matters is do you understand the meaning of the words left and right You can master the entire language. You could be part of one culture or the other, but the second you learn those words, it seems to open up a new way of thinking about space where you begin to rely more and more on that egocentric, body-based, self-based way of understanding the nature of space. And so there's an example where this fundamental part of our imagination, of the way that we structure our understanding of the world, that is the way we think about space, depends fundamentally on you know the kinds of bodies we have, the kinds of brains that we have, but also the kind of experiences and influences we get from our culture and from our language. And that's true for the way we think about space. That's true for the way we think about time. That's true for the way we think about number. All of these foundational building blocks for human imagination exhibit this kind of cross-cultural variety that reflects differences in experiences around the world.
0: Thank you very much. Um, while you were talking, the thing that I kept thinking is also colors. My, in my experience, uh, is the fact that English language, as in Gosh uh, a specific color for sky. They say sky blue, but it's very vague. While in Italian, we have uh, celeste, which is the color of a clear blue sky. It's both cultural and inside us. We're very grateful for Tyler for taking the time to talk to us today and for helping us better understand the depths of our own imagination and exploring the mysteries of our minds. Thanks for listening to IFL Science The Big Questions. Head over to IFLScience.com and don't forget to sign up to our newsletter so you don't miss out on the biggest stories each week. Until next time!